Happy Question Show Day, everybody. As always, your questions, my answers, wherever you are on the channel, question pops into your brain, just type it into the chat. I will gather them all up and I'll answer them here. Uh, just a reminder that if you want space news, you should join us on the weekly space hangout every week, live show as well as podcasts. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can come and check it out and join us. All right, let's get into the questions. Allah Suhajda. Hey Fraser, we use massive cosmic bodies to bend light and magnify distant objects, soon using them to observe exoplanets and their atmospheres as they were long ago. I wonder if it could be possible to find rays of light that have left Earth long ago and through the curvature of space end up returning to Earth with high enough resolution to allow us to look back into the past. Is that completely out of the question? It's mostly out of the question. So you're exactly right that the Earth is giving off photons, reflected photons from the sun. They're going off into space. They are going to continue off in that direction forever unless they run into something. But if there happens to be, say, a supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, then some of those photons are going to go into the black hole. Some of them are going to get distorted by the black hole. And the occasional one is going to do a 180. It's going to go all the way around the black hole, and it's going to come right back at us and pump back into the Earth. But the chances, like the number of photons that are actually going to happen is incredibly low. As well, the distance, right? The distance from the Earth to the supermassive black hole is 22,000 light years away. And then again, that same distance to come all the way back here. So 44,000, it's going to be all distorted. So the amount of usable light that you could get is going to essentially be zero. So there will be photons that are going to be making this journey, but not that we would practically be able to detect any of them. Pathfinder Discovery. I want to know who dusts off the solar panels when it gets dusty, as it probably does often due to those huge dust stores. Hmm? Questioning smiley face, question mark, question mark, upside down smiley face, kind of an Einstein smiley face, another hmm, and then a uh-oh, alien monster uh, terrified horrified love when nasa sent the spirit and opportunity rovers to mars one of the big concerns that they had was that those rovers are solar powered and so they were fully expecting that the dust storm was going to collect kind of like snow on these solar panels and they would eventually run out of power and so they originally only gave the rovers about a 90-day length of time that the mission was going to last. They would be mechanically okay, but the solar panels would just drop the amount of power and eventually they'd die. The amazing thing is that these various dust devils are, are passing through right past the rovers and occasionally clearing their solar panels again. And they've got these great photos of before and after where there was this, this event where some of the dust was blown off the solar panels. Now, Curiosity doesn't have to deal with this problem. Curiosity is using a, a nuclear battery, and so it doesn't have solar panels. It uses heat from, the, from this decaying isotope. But for Spirit and Opportunity, this was a wonderful discovery. And Opportunity just saw its 5,000th sunrise on the surface of Mars. They thought it was going to go 90 days. It's gone 5,000 so far and still kind of going. Schnitzel von Lichen units. Imagine a virus and bacteria they may unintentionally bring. Could potentially be the end of all life on Earth. Also, I hope we have a good immune system for our planet's viruses and bacteria. 
This is in response to this idea that we would be able to see some kind of alien civilization or alien spacecraft coming to Earth and sort of what would be our response if this happened. And this was this was sort of the plot of this story with the War of the Worlds, right? That the aliens came over from Mars, they landed on Earth and defeated our greatest armies, but they couldn't stop the lowly bacteria. And the reality is, when you really think about it, like we evolved here on Earth with our bacteria and viruses and parasites in this sort of perfect balance. They evolved to feed on us, we evolved to try and defeat them, and it's sort of this, it's been this arms race. And so if aliens come from some other civilization, from some other star, they're not going to have evolved in the same environment that we did. So we really wouldn't expect that their bacteria and viruses and parasites would have any effect on us and that our life forms would have any effect on, on them. It'd be more be like the guns and the nuclear weapons and their ability to drop asteroids on top of us. That's the kind of stuff that I'd be worried about. Alpha Gusta. I noticed that in some space launches that the spacecraft immediately starts to spin into another direction. I know that some course correction is needed for different orbital planes and trajectories, but sometimes it seems like they turn 90 degrees. Why don't they just build launch platforms in somewhat the correct direction? I know what you're talking about. When you see the launch of the spacecraft, there's sort of this, especially for the, the, the long time lapses, you can see this the path that the rocket takes, and it looks like this sort of arcing up and, and heading off away. And that's what's happening, right? Keep in mind, when you're in orbit around the Earth, you're going 28,000 kilometers per hour sideways. You're going around and around the Earth. It's not that you're up at the altitude of space. You only need to go about 100 kilometers to get up to space. That's easy. The hard part is going sideways at 28,000 kilometers per hour so that you don't fall back and crash back into the Earth. Essentially, you are falling as fast as you are going around the Earth. So when you're seeing what those rockets are doing, they're going up and over, and then they're going, they're trying to get a little bit up in the atmosphere, but they're mostly trying to get as fast and far downrange as they can, building up that speed to, the, to get into that orbital speed. Now, to under, really understand this, I highly recommend you play a game like the Kerbal Space Program, launch a few rockets in that game, and you will totally understand what it takes to be able to get into space. Fill metal. When the galaxies merge or slam together, would it be a slow event until things start smashing into each other? Or would some crazy gravity changes rip apart? It would be a cataclysmic show. In your opinion, would it be a galactic reset? Would anything survive? We see examples of much bigger galactic collisions than what's gonna happen with, say, the Milky Way and Andromeda. When we look out into space, we see these enormous clusters of galaxies and you know huge groups of, of just galaxies coming together in these big balls. And so there's a kind of astronomical object called an elliptical galaxy. And what that is, is that is the aftermath of several galaxies all colliding together. And so instead of having this really nice spiral galaxy pattern, you get these balls. They look like sort of a bunch of bees buzzing around each other. But still, the distance between the stars in the galaxy are so far apart that you wouldn't expect the stars to really be smashing into each other on a regular basis. So when the galaxies come together, you're going to get a flurry of star formation, and then all that, all that sort of fresh material is used up, and then all the stars are going to get old, and they're all going to die. So really, 
all that a galactic collision does is speeds up the star formation in the in the various galaxies for a little while, and then they just get old and die. Codeless. Enjoy your videos and Q&As. I was wondering, with this mission of colonizing Mars in the future, there's some ideas that the domes could have water in them to shield radiation. How much water is needed to block radiation as the thickness or width of water to block it? Thanks. When we travel to space, getting access to water is going to be one of the best ways to protect ourselves from radiation. Just one meter of water drops the amount of radiation that you experience by a factor of a million. So if you've got some enormous amount of radiation on one side, you can have one millionth the radiation on the other side. So it's a really good way to go. And water is plentiful. We use it for other things like drinking and for creating fuel and for creating our air. So you can imagine future colonists trying to get their hands on as much water as they can and using that to shield themselves and lots of other reasons. XX Coder. I was wondering if it's possible to make bed cylinders that are partitioned into two sleeping areas. With some automatic counterbalancing for mass differences, it may be enough for sleeping in gravity for better health. This was in response to the video that I did about the uh, artificial gravity. And the one of the missions that I mentioned is this thing called the Nautilus X. And the idea for this is that it would be this rotating cylinder, this sort of looks like a donut that would be rotating around one of the modules on the space station. And that's what it would be for. The astronauts would climb into this thing at bedtime, they would spin it up, and they would sleep inside the thing while it rotates. Right? Maybe they'd sit and read or, or get their emailing done or things like that. And so they would have this place where they could go and get some gravity time. And then they would, they would shut the thing off, it would slow back down, they would climb out into the regular station and float around in microgravity until it's time to go back and spend some more time in the Nautilus. So I really like the idea and it's sort of too bad that it hasn't progressed since it was originally proposed and hopefully we'll see it maybe on the new Deep Space Gateway. Jim Labbit. If super Earths are more massive and have greater gravity wells, might that make space travel much more difficult for intelligent life? Put differently, if you could increase the mass of the Earth, at what point would it create a physical constraint on space travel? Yeah, you're exactly right. Other aliens on other worlds are who have maybe higher gravity are going to have a big problem. So just to give you some, these are super rough numbers, but if you went from, say, one Earth gravity to two Earth gravity, you would need about five times as much rocket to launch the same payload. So in other words, if you need a fairly small rocket to launch, say, one ton into space, you would need about five times as much rocket to do that. And if you increase to three gravity, you would need, I think, like 17 times as much rocket to be able to get to space. And if you got to, like, say, 10 gravity, you would need essentially the entire mass of the Earth to act as your rocket fuel to be able to get your mass up to orbit. So right now, where we stand, we are like the, the tyranny of the rocket equation, we are really at the limits of what is a reasonable amount of rocket to be able to get you up into orbit. If Earth gravity was any stronger, it would just be super not worth it, and we would be mostly trapped down here on Earth. Captain Ultimate, g'day from Down Under. I'm a new subscriber, and I'm really enjoying your videos, Fraser, so thanks for your knowledge and all your hard work. Would there be any point or benefit to launching a telescope in orbit around a planet in the outer solar system, like Neptune or even Pluto? Are they too close in regards to current telescopes to really return any benefit? 
you're kind of wondering, like, if you put a telescope out of the orbit of Pluto, would it be able to see the sky any better? And the answer is, like, not really. Now, the sun would be less bright, and so it would take up less of the sky, and so it would have more of the sky that it could look at at any one time compared to, say, Hubble. But you wouldn't really be any closer to the other stars out there. So it wouldn't be good for that use. But the thing that it would be really good for is for an infrared observatory. And the best example of this is the Spitzer Space Telescope. And it you know, observes the universe in this infrared wavelength. And it needs to be cooled down so that it can see very well. And when that coolant ran out, then they had to shift to another kind of observing mode where it wasn't as sensitive. So you could imagine if you took an infrared telescope and you took it all the way out to the orbit of Pluto, it wouldn't need as much coolant. It could last a lot longer, a lot, lot better. So that would be like the perfect place. But getting a telescope all the way out to Pluto would take a long time. If it ever broke, it could never be serviced. So we're going to see space telescopes remain pretty close to the Earth for a long time. Matthew Kramer. Hey Fraser, quick question. Do you think that our advances in machine learning, reinforcement learning, and AI in general will affect space missions in the near and distant future? Absolutely. Right? The big constraint with traveling and exploring in space is that these places are so far away from us that the communication to our robotic explorers takes a long time. So for example, when people are on Earth and they're trying to control the rover on Mars, they have to give it commands and the commands have to take time to get to Mars and then the rover has to respond that it received the command and then comes all the way back. You know, it can take 20 minutes each back and forth. So if you can make the rover intelligent enough to spot targets, make decisions, go over terrain, then that'll be really useful. And in fact, that's what a lot of them do. So old rovers were, were controlled like a remote control car and newer ones are, have more advanced AI, AI on them, and they're able to actually make decisions about what to see, where to go, how to navigate terrain. And you can imagine just more and more of that into the future, where these things are actual, fairly intelligent geologists, and they're traveling around the surface of, of some far-off planet. They're looking at targets, they're analyzing samples, and they're sending back to Earth what they've discovered. So they don't require that big, long delay back and forth. They can get a lot more science done. So I think that's going to be a huge step in getting more out of these rovers and landers and orbiters and things like that. Jesse Dybel. Could you get two BFRs joined by long cables and have them spin? I had this come up a lot in the comments after the artificial gravity episode, and I guess it was sort of a whole section that I didn't cover as well as I as I should have, and I apologize. So, so one of the other ideas for generating artificial gravity is to essentially have two masses that counterbalance each other and have them set them spinning, and you know, and two BFRs is a great example. You take two. Uh, SpaceX BFRs, you have them attached by some kind of cable, reel them out to say 500 meters away from each other, set them spinning with some center point, and on both ends you would have a certain level of artificial gravity. Now there's a couple of problems. One is of course if the cable breaks then the spacecraft tumble away from each other, that's a problem. The other problem is sort of getting to and from one spacecraft to the other. It's very hard to get across from one to the other, but you can imagine some kind of elevator that moves you from one to the other. The other is just getting the balance right, that you need to exactly match what's going on in each one of the spacecraft, otherwise things could get um, unbalanced and you could have oscillations start to get set up. So 
This is an idea that's been proposed and there's been a bunch of variations on it and maybe down the road I'll come back around and do another episode and talk about some of these sort of counterbalance ideas. I talked about it a bit in the episode but a sort of a smaller version and I guess that was what I was trying to get across with that episode was ideally we do want these great big massive rotating structures but let's start with something that's very small something that's just a couple of meters across that can provide some level of artificial gravity so that astronauts can can fight back against the you know all of the effects of microgravity so yeah maybe we'll come back around and I'll, I'll show some other mission ideas down the road about larger sort of in between from these small centrifuges to the big rotating space stations some of these ideas of, of counterbalances and and rotating bolos and things like that Peter Grandier do white dwarves have habitable zones yeah white dwarves totally have habitable zones so remember white dwarf is what happens to a star like our own Sun when it dies say 7 billion years from now it's going to puff out as a red giant it's going to puff out its outer layers and then it's going to cool down and be this sort of the leftover ember of what was once a star and it's just going to cool down to the background temperature of the universe and at the beginning a white dwarf is about 5000 Kelvin and just for comparison the Sun is about 5800 Kelvin but it's a lot smaller so it does definitely have a habitable zone it's you have to be very close sort of like a closer than even like a red dwarf star but the star is slowly cooling down and so it will remain habitable for about 3 billion years and then after that it sort of has cooled down too much and you won't be able to sort of live near the white dwarf but it's fully expected that the you know that white dwarves are going to be places to look for civilizations for habitable worlds as well because they are very stable the star the star isn't throwing out any more flares anymore and you can imagine some future civilization after the stars died they've moved their planet close up to their star their white dwarf star and they're just going around it for another three billion years it gives you more time on the clock all right thanks everyone for asking your questions I really appreciate it as always wherever you're on the channel just question pops into your brain type it in and I will answer them here we'll see you next week